0: Before today's topic, a quick disclaimer. The stories and data we share come from the states that we practice in and the experiences we personally had, which can differ greatly across our country and certainly the globe. This is not a professional advice show. So get comfy and let's discuss death.
1: Welcome to Mort Mike, a down-to-earth discussion on death and dying. I'm Jem. And I'm Red, and we're your day caretakers and undertakers this week. We'd like to start this episode with a word of caution. We're going to be discussing some heavy concepts pertaining to the death of children. If this information is too sensitive for you, we suggest you bypass this episode.
0: Those I dish about death with always seem to come around to asking the same question, one of the most morbid of curiosities is it hard to work with dead children? Neither Jem or I are parents and have only ever cared for our pets, so our experience with deceased youth is going to be from a different perspective than, say, that
1: of a mother of four. I think that along with everyone in the death industry, it's just an uncomfortable, unsettling feeling. It's not natural to have children die. It's not right. It's not It's not the the flow of things. Um, so it. I wouldn't say that I get particularly... Um, heavy about it. But you know, it does affect me in a way. And it does make me think about certain things and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, uh, for me, it doesn't it doesn't bother me too much. So this lack of connection makes it easier to be involved, I think, for me in the arrangement for kids, because I don't have one waiting at home for me to relate to. So when I had a lot more control over uh, who I was getting to meet at my old Firms. I would always try to take the uh, arrangements for kids so other directors that had kids didn't have to for this reason.
1: You know, I would kind of do the same thing, honestly. So uh, working as a death investigator, you know, you have to go to scenes where children have died, and that's often, like, super emotional. Like, um, especially if you have a kid yourself, like, it kind of brings you – it kind of makes you not not ready to take on the investigation in, like, an unbiased manner, as you should – Um, So I I oftentimes like try to go to the ones that um, to the scenes that we're dealing with children and stuff like that, just because like, I don't have that connection. I like being able to provide a service to families and be that, you know, stable um, person that they can rely on without, you know, having any distracting emotions related to dealing with child death. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that train of thought. So even though, like I said before, child death is a very unnatural occurrence, it actually happens pretty often. It's not something that we're unfamiliar with. It's estimated that anywhere from one in eight to one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. And one in about 160 babies are stillborn, which is a lot if you think about it. How many babies are born every year? How many result in stillbirth or miscarriage? But because child death is so unwanted and it's so scary these things are really kind of taboo people don't really talk about them but something has to happen to these babies that pass away in a lot of states and a lot of people and a lot of religions they want to take care of these fetuses these babies even if they never survived in life Um, Some hospitals offer disposal. A lot of stillborn babies and a lot of miscarried babies are regarded as specimens, so they can be classified as pathological waste. Um, And these are very sterile words, and I know this is an emotional topic, but this is technically what it's called. So for those that do end up having
0: a stillbirth, um, or some type of miscarriage that wish to, you know, have cremation or burial, that is still an option available to families. And actually, a lot of funeral homes will do cremations of stillborns for free. Uh, you just have to pay for like any permits or like an urn or something like that if you want one. Something to keep in mind with stillborns is that there's not going to be a whole lot of cremated remains left over after the process since it's mostly just cartilage instead of fully formed bone. Uh, So it's going to be a very, very tiny portion, but it's usually enough for, you know, a a small infant urn or even like a necklace and things like that. And I've, I've actually even had a family that wanted to have a private family for a while with their stillborn. Um, and their their little baby was uh, had come to us in basically a, this sounds awful, but it's a specimen bucket essentially. yeah, it's just like a like a Tupperware container, a little more official than that, but that's about what it looks like uh, and we we tried to pull out the parts that we could and uh, had them sitting on a little blanket for them to visit with, even though it, it wasn't quite looking exactly like a person just yet.
1: Yeah, and you know, it's hard. It's really hard. Like we're trying right now to be so careful talking about this because it is a really, really tough subject. But yes, like miscarriages do happen and, you know, the fetus inside of you does not really look human quite yet. It does uh, to an extent depending on on how far along you are. Um but to some people, you know, it's their baby and they still want to be able to to realize that and they want to be able to witness and they want to like have their ceremonies and have their have their um final goodbyes in this way so if that is something that you know if you're ever in this situation if it's something that you have questions about or something you want to do totally totally an option like we always say like uh you are allowed to do pretty much whatever you want when it comes to funerals as long as you're not harming anyone Absolutely. And more commonly, you'll see
0: funerals being held for uh, babies that have been birthed and maybe have lived a little bit um, or lived for a length of time afterwards, even if it's only at the hospital or for like families that have brought babies home almost like all the time that these these families are going to have services for their babies but there's there's this is a lot less common for these these type of infants to pass away
1: and this also depends on your location i think if you're in like a more urban location or if you live near like a children's hospital um, I think that, you know, we we see a little bit more of the of the infant deaths um, when it comes to like congenital diseases or, you know, childhood uh, cancer, things like this. But, you know, once a baby is born and once once it's in a hospital being treated for, you know, any problems that it has, it's it's pretty rare that that they pass.
0: Very, very true.
1: So because a lot of um A lot of babies that pass away that have these congenital diseases, a lot of them are very rare and a lot of them are heavily funded and heavily researched because people don't want babies to be sick, right? So um, a lot of these babies that do pass away due to illnesses, they're heavily researched. They've taken a lot of treatment, which affects the bodies oftentimes very severely. um, And a lot of the times they're autopsied to a really really great extent uh during clinical autopsy to research the extent of the disease, kind of understand what happened, try to get something out of it that could maybe help other babies in the future
0: absolutely i've also um I think the most like surprising autopsy I had ever seen was a baby's autopsy um we had gotten from the medical examiner and they I I, I Obviously, the typical autopsy is going to be that Y incision, unlike the front, but the baby had had incisions made up and down their arms and legs, and the skin was reflected back. Um, They had basically wanted to check for broken bones and things because they had— seen a lot of issues in the family with abuse or like neglect and things and they they had to check for something like that that was that was like a lot to see uh, when that baby
1: came into our care that's right that is pretty jarring if you've seen that for the first time and you've never seen that before but that actually is a pretty common autopsy practice especially when it comes to cases of neglect cases of abuse uh cases of SUID or SIDS as you guys might know it As a death investigator, these cases are highly, highly um, controversial. Oftentimes, they're very important that you kind of look at everything. So those incisions that Red was talking about, that is to look for broken bones, yes, kind of, but mostly to look for signs of bruising. Um, So we talked about this a little bit before, but when you die, your blood tends to settle. So if you're a baby and you're on your back and you die, your blood is going to settle into your skin on your back. However, if you're an abused baby and you have bruises on the back of your arms, the back of your legs, it's going to be hard to discern whether or not this is blood settling or whether or not this is an actual bruise that someone gave you because babies don't get bruises on the back of their arms for no reason.
0: Right. Um,
1: so what we do is we cut into the skin. If it's a bruise, you're going to see the hemorrhage underneath the skin. If it's the blood settling, we're not going to see we're not going to see hemorrhage like we would see with a bruise. So that's what those are for essentially. We're checking for bruising, we're checking for any signs of abuse.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't know that aspect of it. Yeah. But I guess that's the easiest way to find out then and get
1: right <coughs> to it. Exactly. And like I said before, these deaths um, are deaths that I had to investigate, and they are extremely emotional. Um, the police are highly involved. Um, even in cases of SUID, which stands for sudden unexpected infant death, this is the modern term now for SIDS. I know a lot of you guys have probably heard of SIDS, um, sudden infant death syndrome. That's not like that's not correct anymore, um, because you know back in the day it was an epidemic like these babies would die in their cribs and no one really knew what was going on now with further research and, um, better ideas of how to, um, like safe sleeping for babies, how to make sure they're laid down safely for sleep. Um, we can kind of, we've kind of ruled out the idea that babies die for no reason, um, so suid is kind of the replacement term. A lot of the times what happened with these babies is that they were overlaid with a blanket, or you know, maybe they flipped over and they couldn't flip the other way right up, so they suffocated themselves. Um, maybe they were congested and you know their airways weren't clear, so they passed away. Um, With children and with babies, they're so resilient, it's oftentimes so hard to understand why they died or see pathological evidence as to why they died. So back in the day, without so much technology, without so much research, um, we just call it SIDS. But now we have like a better understanding of what could have happened. We have better investigating protocols. Um, the police are involved with this. There's like statewide agencies regarding child death. And we've kind of narrowed things down. Uh, we still have SUID, which is sudden unexpected infant death. Um, but that would be in a case where we couldn't rule out uh enough of the other things that could have possibly happened. So just very quickly, like whirlwind tour of sewage. But yeah, that was something that I had to deal with a lot too as an investigator. I had no idea about that. That is also super yeah. fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I, wow. This is something that I'm like super passionate about. I was actually um, the coordinator for the child death review in our county. And it's just crazy like how how things have changed over the years and like how like delicate like babies are and how like how hard it is to understand what happened to them you know what i mean
0: yeah absolutely because i mean they're so small and they like it, it, i don't know where i was going with that <laughs> okay. babies yeah, are they, small <laughs> they, are, though, they are they <laughs>
1: are <laughs> they're like little tiny humans and everything is so small and tiny but they're still developing like the, when you're born your lungs aren't fully developed yet you're still developing after you're born. My God! So it's just like, it's crazy to try to like take this thing, this tiny human that's supposed to be doing this, but it's not doing this. And you're like, what happened? Like, it's very cool. I love that kind of stuff.
0: But on the topic of babies being so small, um, you can imagine that having to embalm something small would be also very difficult, uh, especially with all of our instruments made for larger, you know, full grown people. Um it's one of the hardest things I've ever had to do not emotionally just uh with like technical skill. So the first time I ever uh embalmed a baby, uh it was I think it had been born, it had lived a few months outside the womb and you know, we went to embalm, it was uh a it was an autopsy baby. And my coworker and me sat down and like she was newer to, this is like, I was an apprentice at this point. And so we were like, okay, how are we going to do this? And so uh, all of our uh, arterial tubes um, wouldn't fit because the arteries were just so, 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 so small. So we took a syringe that we would have used for like facial injection for um, feature building. Mm-hmm. And we inserted that into the artery and like held it there and like injected it that way, which was like really a pain in the butt because it, kept like stabbing through the artery but Uh, like it was the best that we could do at the time to try to mm -hmm. like embalm with what we had um but i I moved on to another firm later on that uh instead of doing arterial embalming they would do like surface embalming so like, like immersion embalming essentially which would just be taking like a large container uh filling it with water and like a solution of embalming fluid and then just allowing the baby to float um there for However long until they had basically through osmosis like embalmed through their surface. Mm-hmm. which is like if you're not expecting walking into the prep room to like a baby in a container it's kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah, like
1: floating in embalming fluid yeah. like some sort of like alien sci-fi movie.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that
1: does make sense though like they're so small and their skin is so fragile and they're like still developing. I can see how that would work pretty well.
0: Yeah, and it is super important to make sure you get the the mixtures right because babies are like little water balloons essentially like they're there's so much water in a baby, like, it's like I think it's like 75% water like, in a baby versus like a an adult male that has like 60% water, like so much more water, which it changes how we have to do our our indexing when it comes to mixing embalming fluid mm-hmm. for them. So even though embalming can be a little challenging uh, for youth and infants uh the arrangement conference is going to be in my opinion the hardest part because this is where you're you're coming face to face with family members like i'll I'll be making arrangements for you know just little little grandma who passed away and like we have a little a little baby section like an infant section in our selection room with like a tiny mm. little casket and every time they walk by they like oh like what is this little display here oh my god like <laughs> 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 it surprises everybody yeah because no I, one yeah, wants to deal with this. No one,
1: yeah, no one wants to think about child death, like ever. But you know, it is a thing that has to be dealt with, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, right. And it's it's just so difficult, especially for like friends of the family and things like. Oh, what do you even say, you know, to to a parent who's lost a child? Like, mm-hmm. what you at least have two other kids? Like, no, oh, you can't say that. Like, there's no. <laughs> <laughs> <you know? laughs> like, it's so like, you have to be so tender with with I these know. families.
1: I think that is like the hardest part of being death professionals and being like the, the quote unquote last responders. Okay. Um, Is that we have to like, we have to say the right things, but also make sure that we like don't patronize them. Like make sure that you don't, you're not too harsh on like what's going on, but you don't want to like treat them like babies. Cause like they're adults, but this is like probably the most difficult thing they'll ever have to deal with ever. Right, And it's like, it's it's very difficult. I don't know. I always just try to be pleasant and just kind of let them guide like what's going to happen. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good way to do it, too, is that like it, you can't dance around it too much, but you mm-hmm. also need to, you know, be very gentle with how you mm-hmm. put things. No, no medical terminology, stuff like that. hmm. I've even sometimes tried to just do these arrangements over the phone just so, like, some parents don't have to come in because that, mm-hmm. like, that finality, they might just not be ready for it yet to, like, come in and see caskets and, and see those things. So, like, anything I can do to try to make things easier for families,
1: like, that's what I'm going to do, especially at a time like this. That's interesting. Do you think people like doing arrangements for kids over the phone or, like, email?
0: Um, more so it's, it's more so for like, especially infants and stillborns when it's a little more simple of a process. Right. Um, but I think as soon as you branch into like youths, um, like any, any, you know, one over like two, three, four years old, uh, mm-hmm. and until the age, like, like into teen years, I think that's when families really want to come in and, and plan something really special. So I definitely see a lot more of those, um, those families wanting to come in for arrangements because, You know, they want to celebrate their kid's life. They want to have the full service. They want their, you know, schoolmates to be able to come and say goodbye, that kind of thing. So there's a lot more production that goes into a funeral like that. Mm Mm-hmm. I think a service like that actually has the biggest room for personalization, too. Like when you get into like the like toddlers and teens and, and things like that. Um, and you can really as a director, you can really make services like that special for families. Um, I, I remember there was a director I was working with before who took the bed sheets. That uh, the little one came into our care with, like he was wrapped up in his bed sheets, and he like quote unquote reupholstered the casket with the bed sheets. So like he yeah put the um, sheets around the pillow and like the inside of the casket, so it looked like his like little bed, you know, like he would have had at home. and I think stuff like that, that's really what's going to touch families is like, you know, it's it can be even a little sterile of an environment to like see a kid in a casket, you know, like if it's right. not, you know, they, they live, how would they decorate their room, you know? So to see them out of an environment like that, like in somewhere like a funeral home, like it, it, anything you could do to make it a lot more kid friendly, I think. Like I mentioned before, like you, you have to consider that there's going to be a lot of children that are also going to be at the funeral because if they were going to school like a lot of other parents are going to want them to be able to you know be able to grieve and this is a part of the process for kids too so like something that that, you know kids could distract themselves with um is always a good idea like dogs like service dogs things Mm -hmm. like that so always always looking for for different ways to to make services special for everyone that's attending not just the family too
1: yeah. And I think, like, you know, it's different for every family and it depends on, like, what you want and what your needs are. But, you know, death and funerals shouldn't be. You know, it obviously is very, very, very sad, but I told a story in one of our earlier episodes about, you know, a girl that passed of cancer and her family was like celebrating her life, you know, they knew she was going to die, it was terminal, like she was at home on hospice, whatever. Um, and when I went to pick up this little girl, they were singing, they were saying goodbye, like all the kids were running around. It's really that's, you know, something that I would love to see a lot of people experience. I think that's a really healthy way to be able to, you know, celebrate this person that's no longer with us, if it's appropriate, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: But something else to remember is that uh, grief happens for everybody, not just like a parent losing a child, but um, in a situation where a child then You know, it turns around and a child has to lose somebody in their life, whether it's a grandparent or a a parent when they're really young um, or a sibling, even children grieve in their own ways, too. Um, Did your parents ever talk to you about death, Jem?
1: I want to say, like, kind of. So I actually told this story a couple episodes ago where, you know, as a kid, my first realization of death was like, I don't want to die. Like, what happens when I die? And, like, walking into my parents' room in the middle of the night and, like, scaring <laughs> scaring them half to death because I was crying and saying, like, I don't want to die. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, they were kind of like, oh, you know, like, it's scary, everyone dies, but you're not going to die anytime soon, like, you know... Everyone, because then I was like, well, you guys are going to die. And they're like, well, yeah, but you know, you don't have to worry about that. Um, I have been very fortunate in my life that when I was younger, I did not have any death in my life. And so for me, I think death came up like living on a farm and having like a lot of animals. Um, and I think that's an extremely healthy way to kind of introduce your child to death. If that's something that you're concerned about, um, I just remember, I don't know, like, uh, of course, you know, when your pet dies, you're super sad, but like having to deal with that and like being involved with that, you know, being involved with even if it's like, like we talked about last episode, even if it's like a little ceremony in your backyard and, you know, a little shoebox filled with their favorite toys, like that puts the idea of death into kids' minds in that it's something that has to happen and it doesn't have to be scary Um, It doesn't have to be like this unknown, like, you know, cloud over everyone that death is like a scary thing that shouldn't be talked about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And something else to keep in mind is that the grief response that a child will exhibit will definitely change based on their age group. Um, Because as you, you develop as a child, they will be able to conceive different aspects of death. Um so usually by the age of elementary school like the concept of death is like a, a kid can understand at least some of it maybe not like the deep abstract concepts but they understand death. So when you you know say you you lose your your child has lost somebody and you are you're going to break the news to them or try to explain death in general to your kid there's a lot of things that you need to remember to tell them and to explain about death. Um, You need to make sure they understand that death is permanent, that death is final, and that no more processes happen after somebody dies, that death happens to all living things and
1: what things uh, cause death to happen. This is, I just, I want to say thank you for saying that, Red. That was like beautifully put together. This is so, so important. Um, working as a death investigator and working specifically with child deaths, like as a specialty, um, there are suicides that happen because children don't understand like the finality and the like permanence of death. And that's really, really scary to think about, but it happens. It really does happen. Um, And these children just don't have the cognitive ability as young as like nine, 10 years old. Um, to understand what they're doing and what's going to happen if they do it. Um, so this is definitely, keep this in mind if you are trying to talk to your kids about death. Um, it's a hard, hard, hard conversation to have, but I think every kid needs to have this conversation for sure.
0: Absolutely. And uh, just like Jem said, like uh, if you you're having a hard time with that That, you know, starting that conversation with your kids, pets are always a good way to introduce death into a child's life without, you know, there being a big death of somebody that they love Um, involving your child in nature. Uh, can be helpful because that helps explain the life cycle, uh, not just death. Like it gives them a full picture of everything. So like the biological concepts, it gets across the point a lot more poignantly. Um, Of course, I mean, if, if religion is important in your life and you want it to be important in your children's lives, you can definitely use religious explanations, but only as like a comfort, along with biological processes
1: because um you should never you should never just use religious explanations by themselves. Yeah, because I think it's important to be very straightforward with your child um in anything in general. Um kids take things super literally. Um I think we've all had um or have seen in even in like movies and stuff. Um euf- euphemisms being used and then kids taking them the wrong way, especially as like, "Oh, grandma's just sleeping." And they're like, well, why doesn't she wake up? Or when is she going to wake up? And it's like, you know, that's not, that's not helping them understand and process. Or, you know, if, um, you say, uh, well, they're gone to heaven and it's like, okay, well, when are they coming back? It's like, no, you have to, (laughs) you have to explain to them. And, um, you know, if you do say stuff like that, they may be afraid that if they go to sleep themselves, they might die in like the middle of their sleep. I remember this um, prayer that because I grew up religious, this prayer that we used to say that was um, something, 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 something. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul. Oh my t-. gosh,
0: it's so grim. <laughs> and I was like a kid
1: like under my covers like, oh my God. What if I die? What if that happens? Right. It's like I don't want the Lord to take my soul. Like what <laughs> <laughs> And you know, I understand religion is important in that. And you know, um, believing in an afterlife, if that's part of your if you're if that's part of your beliefs uh system and your family um beliefs, that's you know, important for your child to have. But you know, don't like, scare your children into thinking they're going to die and the Lord is going to take their soul. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think something that we also need to, like, mention just briefly is the fact that media and, like, you know, video games and cartoons and things like this has made death like a non-permanent thing. Um, And I can imagine, like, I'm not a child psychologist, but I can imagine, you know, if you're like shooting someone in a video game and they just respond like two seconds later, um, if you're thinking the same thing can happen while you're messing around with dad's guns, like in the gun cabinet, like that's obviously something that needs to be addressed. You know what I mean?
0: Right. You should set the narrative to your children before a media is allowed to set the narrative for your children, mm-hmm. essentially. Because I know that's how I was introduced to death. My parents didn't really talk to me much about it, at least that I can remember. It was all
1: from the Internet. So. <laughs> yeah. But you turned out okay. <laughs> yeah, we were doing all right. <laughs> Um, The cool thing, though, about kids is that they often mirror the emotions of those around them, especially if they look up to you, especially if they respect you as an adult. They are going to base their reactions uh, off of your reactions. So if you take the time to go through grief in a healthy way with your child, that's a great start. And you don't even have to really do anything special for your child. Just be there for them um, and manage your reactions in a way that's healthy with them. Um, some children may not even react to the grief. They may not really even know what it is or how to process it. And others might have regression, such as bedwetting, thumb sucking, old habits that they used to have coming back. Um, these are all things to look out for and to be a little bit concerned about if you uh, see it or know someone who's experiencing this.
0: It's normal, but it's definitely a,
1: a sign that maybe a little more time needs to be spent with them mm-hmm. about the topic. Mm-hmm. And something that we see often is that young children may even think that they caused the illness or they caused the death because of something they did or something they didn't do. Um, This is termed magical thinking, and uh, it would be something like, well, I didn't... do my chores like mom asked me to. So she, you know, got in a car accident and died, or something like this. Um, obviously, this is not healthy for them to think. It's you know not their fault that mom died or anything like this. Um, but this is something that is probably um, pretty common to go through someone's mind if something traumatic like that happens.
0: Absolutely. And uh, young children have a whole different set of like, not to say grieving instructions, but uh, different ways of dealing with things than, you know, say teens do. Um, Obviously, we all go through puberty and we go through those angsty phases and that is there's going to be a whole set of new set of rules for teenagers dealing with grief. Mm-hmm. Emotions are extremely tough at that age. We're all full of hormones, and everything is flipping, flipping, and flopping all over the place. How <laughs> we feel, uh, we're all very familiar with this. <laughs> um, but this is also a time where abstract thought begins to sink in. So it's not just like understanding like that death exists, but it's understanding like how. We are affected by it and really what it means. It's more important than ever to model healthy coping mechanisms for them, because even with younger children, of course, they're going to mirror your emotions. But with older children, if they see you going to the bar and drinking after the funeral, they're going to think that that's how they need to be dealing with things or they need to deal with things in a less healthy way if you're doing something unhealthy. They also have a difficult time uh, feeling different from their peers. Death is an extremely isolating situation. Like you're the you're the kid that you know doesn't have a mom all of a sudden, and you don't want to be different at that age. All you want to do is fit in, and to have something like that happen that basically takes you and puts a, a line between you and others. Like you're different now. Um, it's it's really tough, and it makes them want to suppress their emotions so they just can fit in and be normal. At this age, risk-taking behavior is also very common. So the acting out, uh, the, you don't, you, you're you not my dad, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of behavior, it comes out quite heavily now, just as, like I said, hormones raging, emotions are high for kids, especially if they're trying to hide them from their peers. You're going to definitely be seeing a lot more of them at home in different ways, even if it comes out as anger instead of sadness or isolation instead of sadness.
1: And I think for teens, like as you're getting older, there's kind of like this, I don't want to say like a sweet spot, but like from ages, you know, from like a kid, like, I don't know, six, seven, eight to, you know, a teen, people dying within that age range is usually extremely traumatic, like an accident, um, suicide, uh, homicide, and, you know, that is just added onto the fact that they're processing normal grief emotions um you know if they lose a peer to suicide or if you know there is an accident and uh one of their classmates passes away um this is extremely traumatizing and you know should be treated with a little bit more care than like a regular death like say if grandma died from a heart attack or something like this
0: but no matter what age you're dealing with when you're speaking to your kid about grief and dying um your children
1: can handle way more than you think the good news is though that if you are dealing with this and you are trying to help your child understand what death is trying to help them cope with the death of you know a family member a friend you don't have to do it alone Of course, you need to reassure them. You need to be available for questions. They shouldn't feel like they can't ask you whatever they want. There are no stupid questions when it comes to death. Like I said before, when I was talking to my parents about that, when I was making those connections, you know, they'll ask you about death. They'll ask you, when will you die? When will they die? Um, Be honest with them because you shouldn't lie about that kind of stuff. You can't tell your child that they're never going to die. That's not okay because then they think that for real and they think that they can never die um and that's not safe for anyone but if you're having a little bit of a hard time you know dealing with grief with your child dealing with grief with yourself and you don't really know how to interact with your child about a death of a family member or something like this um there are professionals that can help you and there's no shame in asking for help even like a close personal friend or family member who's been through this with their own kids before, ask them for advice. Um, There are therapists out there that deal with child grief. There are groups, online forums that you can be a part of, um, but you don't have to do this alone. And we don't want you to think that you have to do this alone. If you do need help, please ask for it.
0: One of the biggest takeaways that we want you to understand when dealing with your child's grief is uh, the oxygen mask analogy. Uh, always put your mask on before you put on your child's. They're going to be able to sense your anxiety and they're going to mirror that. They will be looking to you for the guidance that they need and to be their foundation. And if you're not handling your own grief well, they won't have any of the tools that they need to work through theirs either. What you communicate with them will be their base knowledge of what death actually is. Be the first to set that narrative with them and talk to them before someone in their life passes away. Because if you don't talk to your kids about death, TV and media
1: surrounding them on a daily basis is going to do it first. If you don't know where to start, utilize positive literature and media. Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street have some really great episodes dealing with death, but avoid Pixar movies like Coco because that can set an unrealistic expectation about someone coming back from the land of the dead. Um, Just be brave enough to have that conversation with your kid.
0: But that's going to be all for us this week on Mort Mike. We'd love to connect with you guys on our socials, like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at Mort Mike Podcast. That's M-O-R-T-M-I-C-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. It would mean a lot to hear your feedback, so tell us what you think, get a comment, and drop us a rating on whatever podcast hosting site you use. If you have any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear or burning questions you might have about death, shoot us an email at mortmikepodcast at gmail.com.
1: I also want to give a huge thank you to our friend Marson for the use of a song titled Deputies of Death, which he produced just for our show. You can check out his bandcamp at Marson—that's M that's M-A-R-S-O-N, music.bandcamp.com. Thanks, Marson.
0: And be sure to tune in every other week on Thursdays for some more casual conversations on death. Thank you so much for listening. This has been more Mike. Bye. Bye.